You're listening to The Zonecast, the number one source for independent, in-depth scouting and ranking of amateur hockey players in North America. Here is your host, Jashvina Shaw. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode four of The Zonecast. I'm your host, Jashvina Shaw. So for this week, I actually spoke with Jamie Hagerman Finney, and she's worked extensively. I mean, she was a member of the USA Women's Hockey Olympic team, and she's kind of worked extensively with USA Hockey since then, and she's still been a little bit involved. So she has like a really good perspective kind of on women's hockey, like on the growth, her experience playing boys hockey. And originally, I was interviewing her just for a feature, but I was talking to her, and she's it was just a really great interview and there are a lot of things she said that I feel I wanted people to hear in her voice and she also has a really crazy story about um not only so she essentially was a two-sport athlete for the beginning of her Harvard career um she played lacrosse and hockey and then she stopped playing lacrosse for a reason and it's just a very crazy story and um she has another crazy story kind of about playing in the olympics and i just really wanted people to hear that in her voice and she also provided just really great insight i think and to her mindset to how she overcame the adversity she faced not only um from when she was you know a kid playing youth hockey with boys and her experience with that um, and just how people kind of treated her because she was a girl. Um, not only with that, but also with her experience trying to make the USA Olympic team and what she sacrificed to do it and like her dealing with that. And then also how women's hockey, I guess, is growing and especially at the international level. Um, so she provided some great insight. So I figured I would put it together in a podcast. So I actually split it um, because she did talk for a long time. Um, so I cut down our interview for this podcast and I, I tried to split it up so that the feature kind of deals with some different material that might not be mentioned here. And like this provides some of her answers that didn't quite make it in the feature story. So I encourage you to check uh, the story out as well, which is up today. So uh, here's my interview with uh, Jamie. So going back to your youth hockey experience, I know you mentioned that you felt like you didn't have any issue playing with boys, like you felt like you belonged there. But was there any kind of like outside adversity that like where people assume? Yeah. So if you could go a little bit into depth, like about what that was like. Yeah, well, I was lucky. I mean, I grew up in a small town. And so there were there were very few options um, for what you could do. Right. So it was like if you wanted to play hockey, you played with the boys. Mm -hmm. Um but at the same time, I was definitely sort of a lone ranger in that I was one of two girls in the entire program, and um, and so and and the other girl was just sort of at a different level, and so I was always sort of a, I was the one person, the one girl on the teams with the boys and the the dads and the moms and everybody just kind of took me in, um, but that didn't come with you know it didn't come without a lot of issues as we got a little bit older and playing against teams and you know hearing things from certain teams that I remember after after one particular game getting in the car with my family afterwards and being like what does it mean to blah 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 fill in the blanks and my mom lost her mind I mean it was the first time that I was like oh I'm sort of being um, targeted for the fact that I have a ponytail 
um, and, and hearing some pretty nasty things, which I didn't even know what they meant, <laughs> which was a good thing, obviously, because I probably would have uh, been pretty offended and maybe it could have turned me away from the game if that's what it was about. But I was totally naive. I didn't know what it was. And I just loved the guys on my team. They were really wonderful to me. Um, I think if I had felt that feeling of, of, of aloneness from my own teammates, it could have, it could have affected me, but those guys really brought me in and I just felt like I was one of them. However, at that moment, I think it was probably around 10 was when I realized I should probably tuck my hair up into my helmet. Um, and so I did that, started tucking my ponytail up there and I had a very, um, sort of binary name in Jamie. And so we'd sign up for certain clinics and showcases that at the time were, there was boys and there was girls. Um, and that's when it started to get really parsed out, but I loved the boys. I liked the speed. I liked the physicality. And at that time, the girls game was just so much farther. The distance between girls and boys is a lot closer now, I think. And when I was growing up, there were so few girls teams. And so the distance, distance between boys and girls from a hockey standpoint was pretty drastic and I just wanted to play fast I wanted to play physical hockey and so I'd sign up for the boys side of things and because I had um my name was Jamie they'd take our money and then we'd get there and they'd see that I was a girl and they couldn't say no to us because we'd already paid so they had to let me play um and that was definitely sort of another moment where I was like, oh, there is a big difference. There, people don't want you to play for their team because you're a girl. It just didn't, it didn't dawn on me. And then all of a sudden it started dawning me pretty rapidly. Um, but I sort of resisted, uh, not that I resisted playing with girls. I loved playing with girls, but I didn't want to give up that, that, that speed and the physicality of the boys game too soon. And I think any girl who played boys hockey would agree that it's not a slam on the girls hockey. It's just boys hockey to a certain age was what a lot of people should be playing because it just forces you to, to be able to think quickly with the puck and do things that you have more time to do when you're playing with the girls game at that youth age. Mm hmm. Um, so I did want to, you mentioned that it like dawned on you pretty rapidly that like, okay, they don't want girls here. Um, but you also mentioned that like you had a lot of, I guess, camaraderie with your teammates. So that's kind of one of the reasons that you stayed, but like, was there ever a point where you were like, this is too much and this is too discouraging and you wanted to quit or like, how did you kind of deal with that? Yeah, I, I, there was never a point at which I wanted to quit the game because of this sort of subtle understanding that there was definitely a you belong you don't belong I mean that started to to become very apparent but I guess I'm just such a bull in a china shop that I was like I just want to prove you wrong like I want to prove you I want to prove you wrong to the point that you don't see that there's a difference between boys and girls to a certain age I really think that that girls can keep up and then at a certain age the physical nature of biology just takes over and you really can't and I get that part but I felt like I was I was equipped enough with the mental strength and the physical strength to just say you know what I don't I hear you and I could walk away but then you'd get what you wanted and I don't want you to get what you want because this is what I want and just because you're some disgruntled dad because I'm taking your kids ice time and you're realizing that a girl is better than your son well, it's great. Like I was, I I remember this like odd excitement when like dads would get mad 
at my dad because I was, you know, beating up on their son. And I, my dad and I would just, like, high-five about it. And we were like, that is awesome. And a lot of it is because my dad is so invested and so and such an advocate for me not being defined by my gender in any of my sports in any way. And he was so much, um, I mean, such a huge supporter of, like, you know, you're awesome and it's not just because you're a girl. You're not good for, that was one of his big sayings. Like, you're not... When they say, oh, yeah, you're good, don't let them follow that up with for a girl. Like, you're good, period. And it shouldn't matter, girl or boy. And at the same time, you're going to be held to a different standard because you are a girl playing what these people think is a boy's game. So you're going to have to be that much better for them to accept you. So I had to get that much better um, so that I couldn't just sort of be in the middle of the pack. I had to be at the top. And if I wasn't at the top, then they could have a reason to say, oh, you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. So how did you balance both lacrosse and hockey with an Ivy League college coursework? And I <laughs> and you mentioned like growing as an athlete or being a better athlete and not just a better hockey player. So like how did it help you become a better athlete as well? Yeah. So, I mean, it it's well, it, it challenged me. I fell on my face more times than I can imagine just in trying to balance it all like I mean, freshman fall, I was doing um, fall ball, so I'd get up early, I'd go to fall practice for, for lacrosse, I'd go to class, then I'd, in the afternoons, I'd go to, to hockey workouts, and within three weeks, I had mono. I was like, oh my gosh, Jamie, this is probably not a good sign, and so I had to, I had to listen to my body, which is something that, to that point, I definitely hadn't done at all. So right there, that was sort of my number one lesson in being a great athlete, which is listening to your body. And understanding that less is not always more. Um, and so I really had to kind of understand myself as an athlete. And I sort of thought I had done that when I did the, when I had mono and I had to scale back on lacrosse and had a talk with my lacrosse coach to say basically like, okay, I, I should probably focus on hockey. And then when hockey's done in March, I will devote everything to lacrosse or my athletic afternoons to lacrosse. And so that's what I did. I kind of I missed out on the last few weeks of fall ball for lacrosse um and just stayed in in close touch with my lacrosse teammates and actually ended up deciding to room with my lacrosse teammates um after freshman year just because you spend so much time with your hockey teammates and I love them and they're my closest dearest friends but I knew that if I didn't live with non-hockey players I would probably have a relatively more limited experience socially um and so I chose to live with the lacrosse team those girls in my class, which was such a good idea because it just allowed me to branch out a little bit more. Um, and, and then just balancing, you know, having to balance that first year of freshman, you know, college and academics. And I, I was in a, such a good, um, and then I tore my ACL actually, um, back in the fall of sophomore year when I tried to play again, both, hockey and lacrosse in the fall so clearly like getting mono wasn't a sign enough that I, <laughs> I then tried to do both again um in the start of my sophomore year and I tore my ACL during fall ball of sophomore year um and I was so scared to tell coach stone because she had been the one that was like you know what maybe we should hold off and I was just so excited that I went to the last day of fall ball and begged the coach to put me in at defense which I played attack and I was running down the field and tore my ACL, and I was like, oh, man, I am in for it now. Um, but thankfully, we had a great team doctor um, with the 
with the athletic department there at Harvard. And he kind of looked at me and, and looked and listened to my hopes and dreams of playing for both Harvard hockey, but also USA hockey. And that the timing of surgery wouldn't allow me to continue to play for both. Um, and so he said, you know what, James, if you can keep your legs as strong as they are now, get them even stronger, you know, limit yourself to a lot of cross training or, or limit the cross training that you do and do a little bit more closed circuit training. Um, you might be able to get through without having to repair your ACL. And so as crazy as that sounds for the next three years of college hockey, I played, um, without ACL. Mm -hmm. So how, but like, how doesn't it, were, were you in like a lot of pain while you were doing that? Like, how does that work? Yes, I know. You're, you're probably thinking like, I am such a knucklehead. Um, I was absolutely, at certain points, I was definitely in pain. Um, I think, though, your mind takes over quite a bit and sort of decides to readjust what is normal. And so that when I actually got my ACL fixed, I was like, what is this? feels so weird. Like, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't accustomed to that. Um, but... I definitely, I definitely, you know, there were certain days where I was like, man, this is hard. Should it be this hard? But the alternative was missing out and I wasn't ready for that. And I, you know, I probably could have hit the, hit the pause button and that may have had some more longevity for me in the process. But at the same time, I don't think I would have changed anything because it has allowed me to definitely have a depth of, um, fortitude that I perhaps wouldn't have had had I sort of taken that chance or not taken the chance to keep playing without it. Um, but I, we had such a strong team of physical therapists and athletic trainers at Harvard that like they worked so closely with me and with my doctors and with the strength and conditioning team that, you know, I just, I look back at pictures of myself and I'm like, wow, <laughs> you were, you were a bigger person. Um, so perhaps not the most like, anaerobically fit but I was um I, I guess it was good enough um but it definitely took me that first year out of college and living in Brampton and living on my own and then being told by by Ben Smith when I called him up I actually spoke with him in the spring of my senior year at Harvard because I got cut from the world championship team and I called him up and this was right before I got my ACL fix so I I had um, I called him up and I just said, Coach, like, I want to make the U.S. team. I want to make it in the next Olympics. What do I have to do? And he was very honest, and he told me that I'd never make the Olympic team. He said I wasn't quick enough, I wasn't fast enough, I wasn't fit enough, and that he was, you know, he I knew he was going to be the coach for the 06 games, and he just said, you know, you're a good college player, but the Olympics are pl are played on a bigger sheet of ice, and you just can't get, you can't get from 200 feet by 100 feet quicker than most um or those that you you're going to go up against and so you know i ended that conversation having to question whether i wanted to keep going because you know there's this guy who's going to be the ultimate decision maker telling you you're not going to make the team um and so that was again one of those times where i reflected on my childhood and had that feeling of like you know what i have the chance to push on and maybe prove this guy wrong or maybe just keep going you know, long enough to say, like, I, there's nothing more I could have done. And that was sort of my motto going into all of this was like, you never want to wonder what if. I never wanted to question whether I had tried it or I could have done more. 
and so when he told me I'd never make the team, I was like, okay, that hurts, you know, and that sucks kind of a lot, but I still have time. So at least you're not taking away my chance of time. Just give me time. And then I went to camp that spring, um, and he was, you know, pretty excited about the gains that I'd made and sort of the, I'd closed the gap a little bit between myself and some of my competitors that were also my teammates, um, but we were all sort of vying for those last few spots on the roster. Um, but I still wasn't there. I still needed another summer to kind of get myself back in the mix. Um, and I did. And it was, that's, I think was one of the biggest opportunities for me was really having to figure out what kind of athlete I wanted to be. So I had to really redefine myself that year. So I really had to reevaluate my process so that I could understand whether I was sort of more process or product focused. And I knew at that moment that my product was making the Olympic team. But if that was my only sort of definition of success, then I could have been a pretty unhappy kid because there was a real good chance I wasn't going to make the Olympic team. Uh, so that was sort of what got me to that. So that got me through my first year out of college. And then Coach Stone asked me to come back as one of her assistants um, in that second year out of college, which was great. Um, and that was an awesome opportunity also because it was the first of now we've had a couple of the NHL lockouts. And so a lot of the Boston area NHL guys were playing at Harvard. So, you know, I'd be in the office and then I'd go skate with some of them and then I'd go train with the Harvard team. And, um, I just was very fortunate to have fallen into that position at that time. Mm-hmm. So do you think that you were a better player after you got your ACL to the surgery to repair your ACL? Like, do you feel that you had yeah. less? I definitely was because I could push myself in lots of ways that I couldn't in the off season. Um, so I was sort of piecing it together without my ACL. And then once I got my ACL, um, I just was, a, I sort of gave myself that freedom of really becoming more of a complete athlete not just a strict hockey player because that was really all I could do because I didn't have an ACL. So I couldn't go out and play soccer as cross training. I couldn't play tennis. Um, I could run in a straight line or I could bike, but outside of that, you know, and the sort of closed chain lifting that I was doing, but outside of that, I, I really couldn't push myself. So once I got my ACL, um, which was the quickest sort of surgery I could have gotten. So I got the it's the cadaver basically it's it's harvested tissues from a tissue bank um and the doctor said to me jamie this is not gonna there's a really good chance you're gonna tear this again but again like i i had a really direct line to the next couple years and after that nothing really seemed to matter to me and so i was like doc it doesn't matter like get me back on the ice <laughs> and my parents look back and they laugh at me because like they definitely attempted to talk me through some certain things but I don't even remember those conversations um and so I did that and so I got the cadaver and I was back on the ice in four months which is crazy because it's usually you know six to eight months to get you back out there um but it, it's what I needed I mean I needed to get back on the ice so that I didn't miss the USA hockey window um but of course the doctors uh were were accurate in their assessment that I would tear it so it was actually during our Olympic um, uh, year of traveling in, in the tour before the final Olympic roster was, was made, that I actually tore it um, a second time. But because I'd spent so many years without my ACL, I convinced myself that it wasn't torn. 
but I didn't have my ACL in the Olympics either. Um, and But it honestly wasn't until after the Olympics when I was starting to cross train again and I went to see my orthopedic surgeon and I was like, doc, why is my knee still hurt? Like I thought I was doing a pretty good job and he did an MRI. He was like, where is your ACL? I'm like, where is it? It Didn't like run away. (laughs) Um, and he was like, Jamie, it's gone. And you could see it like on the imaging, you saw it start from the the bottom part and then it just kind of was like, and it just like fell off. And so it just had become, it just detached itself because it wasn't my tissue. So at no point did it get reabsorbed into my body the way my second one has done now, because in then the second round they took, they ended up taking my hamstring. I have no idea how someone plays in the Olympics without an ACL. I tell you, I, I, it was like so bizarre. I remember doing it so vividly in one of our, it was our second to last game before he was going to name the roster and I had that voice in my head of him saying, Jamie, you're never going to make the team. And I was like, I can't, I can't say anything. And I was like, you know what, Jim? Like, you've played, you played three plus years without an ACL. You can do six months. And, you know, I, again, had had so much time to build up my strength with the ACL that without it, I felt pretty good. So I don't, I mean, I know, I'm like, you are such a bull, like, you're such a bull in a china shop, and my husband, like, that's all he calls me now, like, I just go, and I sometimes decide to aim after I shoot, um, and he laughs at me, because that's a lot of times what I do, but I guess it worked, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) it makes for a pretty good story. Yeah, in some weird way, it did end up working out. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So... So I want to go back to what you said way back when we first started talking, where you mentioned that you kind of faced the same adversity with USA Hockey, where, you know, people didn't believe that you were, I guess, capable of handling that role. Yeah. um, So I kind of, when, when I was growing up and playing boys hockey, obviously there was a lot of questioning of whether you should and shouldn't be here. Um, And then sort of developing that attitude of, I really want to prove you wrong and I want to just say I hear you but I think that you know I have within me the ability to kind of at least try to make this have a different outcome than you suspect it does um so then when Ben Smith told me I was never going to make the Olympic team I had to reference back to that moment um or those collection of moments from my childhood when you know it was questioned whether I should be playing hockey at all because at that moment hockey was a boys game and girls were just sort of a superfluous addition and kind of just getting in the way Um, and very little attention being given to the fact that girls could play really good hockey and uh, and so those moments definitely were what instilled in me that that sense of like I hear you and I hear that this is your vision for me um, but I think that I at least have time and energy to at least see if there could be another another angle for this um, and so that was kind of what it is and just again the support of my family and um, growing up in a very strong powered you know girl power family I'm one of four girls and we're all very athletic and um, there was never really a question of whether girls should or shouldn't be playing certain sports um, and so I never I never was known to that, that you should or could question it. Um, it was just what you did. So, you know, 
my sisters, my mom, uh, my dad, just incredibly supportive of knowing that I wanted to do certain things and that if it meant playing through some pretty significant injuries, um, there wasn't a lot they they could do to kind of slow me down, just sort of it had been my MO pretty much my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, so just looking at kind of your experience or your experience with hockey over however many years it's been, how have you kind of seen girls hockey grow and then also just women's hockey? Like obviously you played in the Olympics and now you're kind of helping out with the Olympic team. So from your perspective, just the growth of women's hockey internationally. I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, I remember back a few years ago when um, the International Olympic Committee or the, you know, IOC and the U.S. or International Hockey, IHF, was saying, man, we have such a discrepancy between Canada, U.S., Finland and Sweden, too, but then everybody else. And so they invested about a million dollars into a program to basically bring two Olympians from each one of those four countries to this big camp um, where we were basically as athlete mentors to all the other countries to try to give them some of our training techniques and our skating techniques and to then bring that back to their programs and their countries. Um, and so, you know, what we did was we all gathered in, oh God, I can't remember, Slovakia for a couple weeks, and there were two players from the U.S. team, myself and a teammate, and then two Canadians, two Swedes, and two Finns, and we, we worked with the Russians, the Japanese, the Chinese, and that was just sort of the start of this idea that, you know, it's not that it's not that the, those top four countries had it all figured out. It was just the fact that these countries needed to make it a priority and they needed to put more resources. And so it was just that energy. Um, and then it was just the understanding that, like, we're not an afterthought to the men's programs. And there's a lot of great excitement around women's sports and women's hockey really um, kind of took off, I think, in the fact that they saw that there were just these amazing athletes and therefore being able to give them that sense that they can train like the men and train like true just athletes, not not men or women, but just true athletes. And then all of a sudden you saw the speed of the game has just, I mean, that's the one thing everybody says. It's just, it's so fast. And the physicality of it isn't there. I mean, it's not where it used to be and that you could sort of be a big lumbering stay-at-home defenseman, um, which was sort of my MO for quite some time. I mean, I, I couldn't keep up with the way the game is played right now. I mean, these girls are fast. They're agile. They see things develop before anybody else does. And I think that once that, that became the MO of, of what women's hockey internationally is, then, you know, coaches started to develop certain training tactics around that. Um, and so they sort of were able to s- sort of frame their programs to that point. Um, so I don't think it was sort of one thing. I just think it was this culture of training and expectations and just women across the world being able to say, like, no, I can do this. I'm going to do this. You need to pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. And what like what was your kind of experience or takeaway? And like if you learned anything from participating and like helping tutor, I guess, during that camp? Um, I think it's just the fact that um, I don't know. It's a hard question. I think. It was really just kind of putting a lot of a lot of countries, just putting them on the hot seat of 
demanding that certain requirements be made of funding. Um, to just say, like, this is not okay for you guys to not be giving these same resources just because they're women. And that wasn't okay. And so it was just a lot of those conversations, and, and it was a lot of the IIHF having to demand that of people that they hadn't had to demand that of um, and sort of saying, like, we'll only allocate certain funds to you if you meet these criteria. Um, and so I think it was just a lot of really strong, powerful women in the same room for a period of time to just sort of say this needs to happen. Mm-hmm. I feel like also in terms of growth, like part of it is that you have to have a good or strong grassroots. Like now, if you look at it, the women's players are better, but you also have, you know, more girls playing hockey. So obviously they kind of rise through the ranks and each level gets yes. a little bit better. So I guess I don't even know what my question is or how to like tie that into. Well, I, think that's the, I think that's the other part of it too. It wasn't necessarily that they had to give resources just to the top, but it was what's your, like who's bringing up this program from the youth grassroots level um and so when there was a lot more attention given to um that and a lot more investment in the coaching i think too i mean you can have the players but if you don't have the right people to instill these values and work ethic in these young women um then it's going to go nowhere and so i just think that you know i think u.s and canada definitely set the stage for there to be a lot more emphasis on the profile of the coaching staff at the youth level, but also just the number of players that were encouraged to participate and, and just start to see the game being played at a speed that was going to become the hallmark of what women's hockey internationally is now. Mm-hmm. So obviously, like in today's age, there's, I think, a little more exposure to everything just because of the internet and social media. But back when you were playing in the Olympics, as compared to now, like how much more attention or I guess like hype is there for the women's um, national team as opposed to maybe there were like for me I feel it's equal but I also follow women's hockey very closely so I'm just (laughs) curious like from your perspective of like having participated in it and seeing it now like if you think like there's more hype around the women yeah I mean I think they are I mean I think there's just I think when the women did that strike last year for the worlds I mean that's three you know and then from that just created this hype and excitement around the game um and those women have become incredible advocates and supporters of saying hey pay attention not just because we're girls but because we're really darn good at our sport um and i think that there's just been a lot of energy around that you know just sort of demanding at least getting close to equality in the kind of resources that are given. And I think when little girls can see a Megan Duggan saying, I'm not going to play unless you let my teammates, you know, have access to certain things, then people are going to say, Hey, there's a reason we should be watching this team. Um, and that's what they've been able to do. Um, what's your favorite thing about coaching? Oh man. Um, my favorite thing about coaching is probably, um, no, it definitely is the ability to work with a player um, and therefore a team to get them to think and do and see things that perhaps at first they didn't think were possible and to find a depth within themselves where they can say, no, I can do that now. Whereas prior to our work together, they may have said, no, that's too hard for me. Um, and I think because I've had a lot of experiences 
um, where I had to ask myself whether I wanted to stop playing or I wanted to agree that somebody knew better than I did about my abilities. Um, I want to ensure that these kids have the capacity within themselves to say, I hear you telling me I'm not good. I hear you telling me I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough to be on this certain team, but I now know what I can do to try to improve upon those certain things so that I can either prove you wrong or at least take a little bit back, take a little control back so that I'm doing everything that I can then say, there's no what ifs in this process. So I want all of my players to say that no matter what they're venturing into, they can never say, what if I had tried harder? What if I had worked, you know, 20 more minutes after practice? What if I had eaten better? What if I had gotten more sleep? So if we can maximize that, then they know that there's a depth within themselves that they can go to when they really need it and when things are really hard. And maybe that's going to be beyond the athletic arena. And maybe that's going to be when, you know, my son has special needs and I have gone to the depths of my athletic, you know, self-talk, um, which has been really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at it now, was it a good idea to play without an ACL for three years? Oh, totally. I mean, ask me that when the doctor tells me I need a knee replacement, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I just think, I think we can always look back and say like, oh, I probably could have taken a year off of college and, but like, I, and then I don't, that's just not me. Like, I know myself and I know that I'm someone that just kind of, again, like puts her head down and probably despite some pretty good, like outside uh, judgment, will just go do something because I have this energy and passion to just go for it. And I think that, you know, from a biological, you know, kinesiology standpoint like no probably wasn't the smartest thing I could have done um but from sort of uh being true to yourself and kind of living out my mission of just like giving everything I have to every moment of my day like I I don't think I could have ever made another choice I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Jamie I do apologize she kind of cut out at the end there and I couldn't quite edit around the part where she cut out but I thought her answer provided insight and was important so I just left it in Um, I really can't get over the whole playing without an ACL thing especially doing it twice and then doing it again while playing in the Olympics like that's a completely really crazy story to me Um, but as I mentioned I just thought hearing her say it and that whole conversation was it came across better in the interview than it would have in print so I hope that you enjoyed listening to that and as always like we're looking for feedback so more than happy to hear any questions comments or especially any topic suggestions Um, we want to provide the best information to the community so if there's something that you'd really like us to talk about or have an expert on to debate more than happy to do that you can reach out to us via twitter Um, our username is at underscore neutral underscore zone or you can email us my email is jshah at neutralzone.net I look forward to hearing from some of you and I also look forward to catching up with you soon.